0: Philippians chapter 2, in our series, Sin and Judgment, Philippians 2, verse 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose." Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not of those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, And not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Amen. The Apostle Paul in this letter to the Philippians is imprisoned. He is in jail, not for doing wickedness, but for preaching the gospel, faithfully preaching the gospel. And yet while in prison, he is not introspective. He's not... Uh, licking his wounds, and he's not mourning and groaning over his circumstances. He's not grumbling against God about his circumstances. But he is concerned about the Philippian church. He's concerned about others. He is concerned about loving his neighbor, loving his brother, and so he writes this letter. And he understands that every church, and even the Philippian church, has its divisions, has its conflicts, has people who are grumbling and disputing against one another. He knows that, and he has heard of that. That's why he's addressing that in this chapter, chapter 2. In in so doing, he focuses on three significant persons. In verses 1 to 11, it's Jesus Christ. Verses 1 to 11, Jesus Christ. Actually, we may say three persons, uh, four persons. And that is the second in verses 12 to 18 is the Apostle himself and his predicament. And then 19 to 24 is Timothy, 25 to 30 Epaphroditus. Our Lord in verses 1 to 11, the Apostle himself, 12 to 18, Timothy in 19 to 24, and Epaphroditus in 25 to 30. Three examples of those who have the mind of Christ. Christ, of course, is the model. He is the epitome and the supreme example. That's the example he first presents, and then he presents these other three. Himself, Timothy, Epaphroditus. Now, why does he do so? Because this is the pattern of Scripture. Our first example of what holiness and righteousness is our first example of truth, our first example of love and grace is God Himself in the face of Christ. That's our first example and the best example. However, God has given us many examples in Scripture in us, for us to compare and contrast the way we are with the way they are in Scripture. And this contrast is necessary. The reason is, they were humans, they were just like us, they had the same kinds of temptations, and therefore we must learn from their examples so that we might emulate their godliness and reject their wickedness. We should follow whatever they do that's right and then flee from whatever they've done that's wrong. This is the contrast in the Bible. We have to understand what true virtue is, what true righteousness is, and then what the Bible calls wickedness. We have to understand the difference between righteousness and wickedness and not think we are immune. We are not immune to wickedness. It is possible for each of us to commit wickedness. Knowing that and also understanding the nature of churches and also the nature of man and whatever he has heard from the Philippians, messengers from the city of Philippi, he says this in verses 1 to 4. And he's going to both compare and contrast in verses 1 to 4 and then present to us the supreme example, Christ. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. The encouragement in Christ consolation or comfort of love, fellowship or communion of the Holy Spirit, true affection and compassion. If we are to practice these virtues, then what will it do? What will it bring about? It will make the teacher, the pastor, and in this case the apostles, joy complete, because that is what we should all desire. We should pursue the Christian life in such a way as to be of what? The same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We should strive to be of the same mind, same love, same spirit, same purpose. Essentially, that's what he's saying in verse 2. That's when the joy of the teacher and the joy of his disciples will be complete. This is what we should pursue together. Keeping this in mind, well, what would the opposite of these virtues be? What would be the opposite of these good fruits be? Verses 3 and 4 explain. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit Nothing should rise up within us in thought, word, and deed that is born of selfishness. Nothing we do should be selfish. By selfish, he doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself with basic needs, but he means that when one is preoccupied with carnal self-interest, That is selfishness. And that will uh, bring about a barrier and a breach in relationships with others, other Christians. That should not happen. Because if selfishness is happening, then we're not of the same mind, same love, same spirit, same purpose. It's the opposite. It has to be one or the other. Further, there's empty conceit. Conceit is another way of expressing the heart's attitude, the inner man's attitude as something that is from pride. Because one is proud, then he has disdain for others. He is looking down on others unjustly and he's puffing himself up Elevating himself and pushing others down. When this happens, then it is sin. It's called empty conceit. It's empty because the man might do that and think he is superior. He might think he is better. He might think that the people under him or the people who who, who are associated with him are worthless, are crazy and unjustly characterizes them and puffs himself up. He calls it empty. It's empty because it's got no substance. It's got no substance. It's vacuous. It will not lead to anything good. In contrast, we must have humility. The humility of mind. Humility of mind is the opposite of being selfish and conceited. Selfishness and conceit may be summarized as pride, and the opposite of pride is humility. This is what we must strive to have. And daily beat down any temptations from selfishness and empty conceit. Every day. If we have humility, then verses 1 and 2 can take place in our life. If we have humility, then we will do what? Verse 3. As well, we will regard one another as more important than himself. We're not going to be thinking, me, myself, I, mine, all the time. What I want to do, what I think, what I know, what I want to say. That will not be the first thing, but we will have self-control and make sure that we are considering the legitimate needs of those around us, approaching people, entering the room, entering the workplace, entering any new venue, any place you go, considering that yourself is not more important than the others around you. Be aware of your surroundings. Be aware of what's happening. And consider how to minister to one another. Because if we are in the corner, if we have our head down, if we are not talking, or we're talking too much, then that is because there's selfishness and empty conceit. We're not considering and asking about how others are doing and how we can help them. Encourage them. Pray for them. Share the word of God with them. That's what we must do. Verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is a further explanation of verse 4. Of verse 3. Verse 4 is a further explanation of verse 3. We do not look... Merely, exclusively focused on our own personal interests. Again, when we enter a scenario, day by day, when we enter the room, we go outside, we go to the store, we go to school, wherever we go, we should be considering what will I say, what will I do in order to help and encourage the people I meet? And whether that is Family, whether that's friend, whether that's stranger, whether that's a complete stranger, what will I do if a scenario is thrust upon me? Am I going to be considering and concerned about the interests of others? That's the attitude. Then in five to eleven, perfection. The one who did it to perfection is Christ Himself. Verses five. To 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The attitude we should have is the attitude of Christ in his incarnation, the attitude of Christ during his humiliation, the attitude of Christ while he was on the earth. And how did that manifest itself? Well, first, he existed in the form of God, verse 6. He existed as spirit, he existed in glory. He was in fellowship in heaven with the Father as deity, having a full divine nature, as he says, equality with God. He possessed equality with God, not just in nature, but in glory. He was not being mistreated. He was not being ridiculed. He was not being persecuted. He was not weak. He did not grow tired. He did not need water to drink. Nothing like that was happening. He had equality with God. But he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Not, he does not mean to grasp for, but he means to keep grasping. This is important. Jesus was not seeking to elevate himself That's not what the point is. What he's saying is he was not seeking to keep his status in glory, but he was willing to give it up. And what does he mean by giving it up? He says in verses 7 and 8, he did not give up his deity. That's not what he let go of. He let go of the glorious treatment so that if he took upon a human body, if he took upon human flesh, then that is emptying himself. Emptying himself is not emptying himself of actual deity, but not residing in heaven exclusively as deity and receiving constant glory and praise. He is now susceptible to the weaknesses of the world, to the evils of the world, because he's now human. That is the sense in which he emptied himself. That that clarification is needed because many heretics over the years have said that he had deity and then he lost his deity and then later regained his deity. No. Deity... God, the divine, can never lose his divine nature. That's impossible. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi three, six. But you are the same, and your years will not end. Hebrews one verse twelve. God is the same. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that's true of Christ. So then, if he had glory as deity without any humiliation, without any persecution, without any suffering, without any pains in the world, now he's showing how much he cared for others. How much he cared, especially for the church. How much he cared for those he came to redeem. How much was his dedication toward us? How much was he selfless, not selfish? How much was he humble and not proud? How much did he have one purpose in mind? intent on one purpose, to serve us. How To what extent? He came as a bondservant or slave. He came as a slave to do the will of God the Father, perfectly. He came in the likeness of men. He came in the likeness and appearance as a man, verse 8. By likeness and appearance, he does not mean he was not a man, but he's saying he actually looked like a man. He had all of the nature of man and a male. Yes, he was a man and a male. He was not male and female. He was not a female or any other corruption that modern perverts in the sexual revolution are saying that he was. He was not a homosexual or anything like that. But he did have the limitations of a human nature. Jesus did. The limitations of a human nature. He was in one place at one time as a man. Not as deity, but as a man. One place at one time. That's one example of his limitation in the practical, physical sense. He also drank water. And wine. He also ate meat. And vegetables. He also grew tired and needed to sleep. These limitations he had. He also had. The temptations of the world. He had his vicious enemies. He had his violent enemies. Always on the prowl. Always seeking to undermine him. Day and night. Constantly. He had that. And so he had the temptations of their trickery, the temptations of their tests, the temptations of their questions, always attacking him. Yet he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He continued in this state to the point of death. He never gave up. He resisted constantly. He fought against the world and the devil constantly, not his flesh, because he had no sinful flesh. He had external temptations, but not internal temptations arising from his depraved nature or carnal nature. He had no depraved nature nor carnal nature. He had no flesh or sin embedded in him, in his soul or spirit. That did not exist. But he was obedient to the point of death. To the point of death to love us. That's the way we ought to be toward one another. He says, then, even death on a cross, even death on a cross, which is tortuous, it takes a lot of pain and suffering In his case, they made sure he had lots of pain and suffering. We know from John 19, Pontius Pilate and Herod, Caiaphas and Annas, they were happy to drag him back and forth in the various sham court cases. And Pilate delayed as long as he could, but tortured him meantime, and then impaled him on the cross. On a cross. He did not die a natural death. He did not die when he was 80 years old. He did not die in his sleep. He did not die without pain. He died a miserable death on a cross. That's the way in which he was selfless instead of being selfish. Now, it's not as though that is the end of the matter. Remember, just as it says in Romans eight seventeen, we shall be glorified with Him if we suffer with Him. And that's the same here with Christ. First, there's suffering. That's verses 5 to 8. After that is glorification. That's verses 9 to 11. And this is there, set before us to be our hope and to... Increase our zeal to pursue righteousness, to look to the future and understand that just as God exalted Christ, He will one day exalt us. Our reward is not in this world, whatever men may do. Verse 9, Therefore also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue bow should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now he is highly exalted. And on the day of Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not only will that happen on that day to Christ, it's here in Philippians because the Bible in several places, such as Revelation 3, 9 says, that they will also bow down to us in humiliation, our persecutors. Revelation 3, verse 9. 3, 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. They will bow to the Lord Jesus. Every knee, both the righteous and the wicked, will bow to Christ and confess He is Lord. They rejected His Lordship now. They shook off the yoke of His Lordship now. But they will have to confess, they will be forced to confess that He is Lord on the Day of Judgment. And also, verse 11. To the glory of God the Father. It reminds us that though God is very concerned about our well-being, the salvation of our souls, and the sanctification of our souls, He is that. However, we are not the end. We are not the goal. We are one means of God's goal of glorifying Himself, Love is not the primary virtue for which God created the world. Not even justice is the greatest virtue for which God created the world. The elect will certainly receive his love, and the reprobate will certainly receive his justice. But these two are meant to glorify God. Just as we said, both the righteous and the wicked are going to bow on that day of judgment and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But why are both the righteous and wicked doing that? To the glory of God the Father. The goal of creating the elect and the goal of creating the reprobate is to glorify God the Father. Now the example of the Apostle Paul as he encourages the Philippians to imitate him. Encouraging the Philippians, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He commends them for being obedient. And the kind of obedience, whenever the master is not in in um in his presence, or in their presence. When the master, or we today might say, when the employer, when the manager, when the supervisor, when the boss, when he is not around, are the employees working as diligently as when he is there? Usually in human nature, when the manager... The foreman is not on site. The employees are more lazy than if he is there. But that's the opposite spirit we should have. The opposite spirit we should have. Just because nobody's watching doesn't mean God is not watching. And he commends these Philippians because he says, Now much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is how they should be. They were, and this is how we should be. We should be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not so concerned, is anybody watching? Is my paymaster watching? Is my employer watching? That should not be our concern. Our concern is whether God is watching, and if God is watching, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Work it out does not mean work for, but work out means it should be manifested, it should be demonstrated, it should be working in you and out uh, coming out of you, flowing out of you. Work out your salvation. This addressed to believers who already have salvation, but it must be displayed. There must be the fruit of the Spirit. There must be good fruits. This is the workout, your salvation. But notice, it's not supposed to be done in a casual way. It's not supposed to be done carelessly. It's not supposed to be done whenever we feel like it or however we feel. He says here, with fear and trembling. We must always fear and tremble before God. He should be the most high, most supreme reason for us to work out our salvation. And if we keep Him in mind, it will be done with fear and trembling. Knowing that, He will judge us on the day of judgment. He will hold us accountable for what we have done. We're not serving man, ultimately. We are serving God. Therefore, do so with fear and trembling. This is a New Testament phrase. It says it right here. Fear and trembling in the New Testament. The Testament that supposedly does not say very much about sin and judgment. But it does. It says in Second Corinthians seven verse one. Second Corinthians seven one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Second Corinthians 7 15, seven fifteen. And his affection abounds all the more towards you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And that's a compliment. Fear and trembling. There are many such passages in the New Testament on how we should be working out our salvation. But we're not alone We're not alone. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God, by his grace, has regenerated us. God has gifted us with faith and repentance. We are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. We have his word. We have his people. But here in particular, he's talking about God working in us. For a particular end, to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is willing and working in us for his good pleasure, not for our selfish interests, not for our empty conceit, not for our own interests, but for his interests, for his good pleasure, not our good pleasure, his good pleasure. Keeping this in mind. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. We can't have an attitude of grumbling and disputing. Nothing is perfect. Nothing is ever right. Always discontent. Always agitated. Always anxious. Always bothered always nervous, always fearful. We should not be that way. He says, without grumbling, complaining, without doing that, and without disputing. What does it mean to dispute? To pick fights. To look for wrongs. To always be so upset and agitated that you are quarreling, disputing, picking fights with others. That should not happen. Not at all. Not in the body of Christ. And not only in the body of Christ, but we must compare what happens with us to the world because there is there should be a difference. Verse 15, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. We must prove ourselves. These days, people think, in New Testament Christianity, there's no need to prove ourselves. Why would you say that? Well, Jesus said, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So then you will know them by their fruits. Did he not? In Matthew 7, 13 to 23, he exhorts us to make sure we are proving ourselves to bear good fruit. We must prove ourselves. We must test ourselves. We shouldn't chafe at that thought. The one who chafes at the thought that he might be an unbeliever, because he doesn't want to give up his sins, he better take warning. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Test yourselves. 13.5, 2 Corinthians. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. He says, test And test, he says, examine, make sure Jesus Christ is in you, do not fail the test. In the same way, we have to prove it, not prove it to boast, but prove it to produce the fruit of the spirit so that it becomes a source of our comfort, a source of our hope that we are indeed different. We're not the same that we used to be. And we are for the better, being sanctified, blameless and innocent. This is the way we should strive to be blameless and innocent. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew five, twenty-eight. We should be children of God above reproach. If we attach ourselves to the name of God, If we attach ourselves, if we claim the name of Christ, then we ought to be above reproach. We ought to be above criticism in the sense that no one can say, well, he claims to be a Christian, but he's a malcontent. He claims to be a Christian, but he uses profanity. He claims to be a Christian, but he's very selfish. He claims to be a Christian, but he has all of these obvious addictions. So what's the, what, what is it? Is he a Christian or is he not a Christian? They should be above reproach. Above reproach means no one should be able to say, you are a hypocrite. You're, you say you are a Christian, but actually you are addicted to gambling. The two don't go together. This is what he means. We must be above reproach. Why? Because we are living in a very troubled world. Crooked and perverse generation. Crooked and perverse generation. This is the way in which we must distinguish ourselves from others. Just because they do it, we should not do it. We must avoid doing it because they are the crooked ones. They are the perverse ones. They are the adulterous ones. They are the evil ones. Evil and adulterous generation, as Jesus said. Here the apostle says crooked and perverse generation. This should not be true of us. In fact, the crooked and the perverse ought to have... A guilty conscience when they see us is not an evil thing. The moment light is shining, darkness should flee away. We need that to happen whenever we turn on the light switch. We need that, that to happen whenever we light a candle. We want the darkness to dissipate, correct? We want it to go away. So that's not a bad thing in the natural world. And that's true in the spiritual world, because he says, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So our light is supposed to dissipate and get rid of the darkness in the world. We are supposed to radiate our light, our radiation, our glow, should be in such a way that it causes the crooked and perverse people to walk away, to flee away, or to repent and then join us. That's the way it's supposed to be. Not the opposite. We are not to assimilate to the world and its idolatry, its crookedness, its perverseness in so-called friendship evangelism, relational evangelism. No, not like that. In fact, we're supposed to do the opposite. That is, up front, they should know who we are. Doesn't darkness know immediately what light is? And goes away. Isn't that what happens? That's what should happen. Not in a boastful way. We don't walk into a room with pomp and circumstance. But they should know. When we walk into a room gently. Cordially. Kindly. Quietly. Friend, in a friendly manner. In a helpful manner. They should know. Oh this person is different. This person is very different. Everybody else, whenever they walk into the room, that's not what happens. That's what he's saying here. There must be this distinction between us and them. And then 16, holding fast the faithful, excuse me, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. We must hold fast, hold fast, cling on to, don't let go of, use both of your hands to hold on to the word of life. Don't let it go. That's talking about the Bible, the Scripture. It should always be in our hand. In Ephesians 6, 17, it is the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians six seventeen it's the sword of the Spirit. And we ought never to die as a fool dies. <coughs> 2 Samuel 3, 33. We should never die as a fool dies. In the real world, A soldier should never be caught off guard, like Abner was in 2 Samuel 3.33. In the spiritual world, we should never be caught off guard. We should always hold fast, always have it at hand, the word of life, the sword of the Spirit. Not let it go, because you never know when you'll need to use it. You'll never know. Don't be caught off guard. Because if you are caught off guard, you might meet an enemy of Christ who slays you and hews you into pieces. Because you don't have your sword with you. That shouldn't happen. Hold fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, that is, when Jesus returns on the day of judgment, day of Christ, chapter 1, verse 10, to be sincere. And blameless until the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the day he returns, on the day of judgment. So that on that day, in the day of Christ, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He wants to, on that day, be able to rejoice with all of us that he labored not in vain. It wasn't useless. It wasn't empty labor. He wasn't toiling in a barren field with no water, no seeds, and hoping that corn would grow, hoping that a crop would come out of nothing. No, he wants to rejoice on that day because he toiled in benefit, not in vain. And then the way he lives. He is being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Meantime, he's living a sacrificial life like Christ did, sacrificing himself on the cross. He's serving them just as Christ served us so that our faith might increase. He says he rejoices and I rejoice and share my joy with you all. When he understands that when he pours himself out, that is, he gives up what he has so that it is distributed to somebody else, like a drink offering. It's being removed or poured out of the cup in order for it to be a sacrifice and service to God. And likewise with us. We should not be... Stingy or begrudging the service and sacrifice of ourselves for others. When that comes up, then there is not going to be any true rejoicing and joy. And this is mutual. Those who are helping and those who are helped should have this mutual joy. Some people will not take help. They're too proud to take help, receive help. And others are too proud to give help. But this is the opposite. It's mutual. It should be mutual. Both the giver and the receiver ought to do so in humility. Now, Timothy 19 to 24. What is commendable about Timothy? Verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not of those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. He sends Timothy in verse 19 as a messenger. He sends Timothy as a messenger to the Philippians and then to come back to the Apostle Paul while Paul is in prison. So he is a faithful messenger of the Apostle Paul and servant of the church. And he says here, he wants to know how the Philippians are doing. Learn of your condition. Is this not a paradox? That the Apostle Paul is in prison, but he's not grumbling and disputing between himself and God. He's not grumbling and disputing in the prison. He has an attitude of service towards the Philippians while he is in prison wanting to know about how they are doing. Then Timothy himself, why did he send Timothy? Verse 20, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Look at how much or how little there are of faithful men. How few men that are faithful in this way. The Apostle Paul, did he not preach the gospel in many places? Was he not the father of many? Was he not discipling many? Did not God gift him with the graces of the Spirit and even uh, working miracles and wonders, signs and wonders of a true apostle were performed among you? Right? 2 Corinthians 12.12. Was that not the apostle? But after all that labor, for all those years, risking his life, he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That should amaze us. But it's not only in the apostle's time that that happens. Ezekiel 22.30 Ezekiel 22.30 And I searched for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. I found no one, God says. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs 20, verse 6. Chapter 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Who can find a trustworthy man? Everybody's going to say, I'll be loyal to you. I'll follow you wherever you go. They will say that. That's taken from Luke nine, fifty-seven to 62. I will follow you wherever you go. Yes, people will say that. And yet, very, very few are actually loyal. Timothy was like that. And genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. And why is it? There is a distraction. There is an obstacle in the way. And what is that? Verse 21. For they all seek after their own interests, not... Those of Christ Jesus. The reason there are very few faithful, loyal, who can stand in the gap, because they are preoccupied, they are obsessed, they are addicted. Their own personal interests have become their idols. That's why they don't care about others the way Timothy did. Verse 22. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. The Philippians know. They saw the good fruit in Timothy. They saw the work of the Spirit in Timothy. They saw his diligence. They saw his genuineness. They saw the way he lived. They saw the way he treated them. They saw the way he was in relation to the Apostle Paul. Like A faithful, diligent son serving his father. That's the way Timothy was. And that's why he has all the confidence and trust in the Lord. He says, I hope to send him immediately. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus 25 to 30. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus is also very commended here. He's called my brother, brother in the faith, fellow worker, co-worker for the gospel, fellow soldier, they're in the same barracks, They're on the same battlefield, fellow soldier. They can trust each other in a foxhole. They know that this fellow soldier will not stab the other in the back, in the foxhole. They know that. He knows that. Epaphroditus won't do that. He is a reliable and honest, courageous fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Messenger and minister to my need. He is carrying out the work of the apostle. He's not serving himself. He is serving his teacher, his master, the apostle Paul. He doesn't go about his tasks with his own personal interests in mind, but that of Christ. Now also, verses 26 and following, Epaphroditus had a sickness to the point of death, but God spared him. He was almost dead. He was about to die. And yet God delivered him. God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on the apostle, because the apostle would have had sorrow upon sorrow. So when he was restored to health, what did he do? Go on a luxury vacation? Retire from the ministry? This ministry is taking its toll on my body. I just need to relax and quit. Did he make excuses like that? No. It says in twenty-eight. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. All the more. He's equipped. All the more. He's going to be an encouragement to both sides, to both parties involved. 29. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Receive him in the Lord with all joy Not grumbling and disputing, but with all joy, hold men like him in high regard. High regard. Not in condescension, not looking after your own personal interests, not with selfishness and empty conceit, but hold him in high regard. Why? Verse 30, because... Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. He was the gap between the Philippians' help to the apostle, and he came close to death for the work of Christ. Who else did? Christ also, but all the way dead. The Apostle Paul, many times he came close to death and finally did get executed by the Romans, most likely under Nero, Emperor Nero under the Romans. But Paul many times came close to death, but he persisted. He didn't say, this gospel ministry is too dangerous. I need to take it easy. I don't want to die before my time. Not Paul, not Jesus, not Epaphroditus. He came close to death for the work of Christ. He did not run away, shrink away in shame. He did not flee when the battle was engaged. He did not defect to the other side in the battle. He didn't do anything like that. He persisted even though he was close to death for the work of Christ. Can we be like this? Self- less, not selfish, looking after others' interests, not our interests. Using Christ, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and many others in Scripture as examples, positive, good, righteous examples, to mimic them, to be like them, not like ourselves, not the way we used to be, but constantly, progressively, repenting of sin to glorify God. Let's be this way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.